Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 101 of History of the Marine Corps, Marines at Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was the first in a series of attacks designed to take out Allied response in the Pacific. During this episode, we break down events leading to Japan's decision to attack Pearl Harbor, the planning that went into the attack, Japan's voyage across the Pacific Ocean, and of course, Marine activity during the raid. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. When Japan invaded French Indochina in 1940, the United States responded by cutting off their oil supplies. This restriction significantly impacted Japan's ability to support a war, and their military strategists started looking for oil in other places. The diplomatic negotiations between Washington and Tokyo were still happening in the days leading up to Pearl Harbor, but it was clear that the two countries wouldn't reach an agreement. The only way Japan could get the black gold was through force. Their main target was the Dutch East Indies, which was rich in oil resources. However, the United States occupied the Philippines, just north of their target. For Japan to defeat U.S. forces in the Philippines, they needed to take the U.S. Pacific Fleet out of the picture. The strategy for Pearl Harbor can be attributed to one man. Admiral Izuroku Yamamoto. As early as 1928, Yamamoto gave lectures at the Japanese Navy War College about a carrier raid against Pearl Harbor. When World War II came around, he actually opposed attacking the United States. He was concerned that a long war with the U.S. wouldn't end well for Japan. But once Prime Minister Hideki decided on war, Yamamoto had little option. He argued that only a surprise attack on U.S. naval forces in the Pacific was their best chance at victory. On November 22, 1941, a Japanese armada gathered at Hitukapu Bay. Thousands of men assembled to support this mission. Due to the secrecy, only a few knew of the plan. The mystery of their destination caused many men to speculate. Scuttlebutt ranged from it being a training exercise to an attack on the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. The few who were aware of the plan understood the risk they were about to face. The Japanese intended to sail a fleet of ships 
3,500 miles across the Pacific Ocean and attack the U.S. in Oahu. The goal was to cripple the United States' ability to respond to naval engagements in the Pacific, and Pearl Harbor was the first in a wave of attacks designed to take out Allied response. On November 26, the Japanese strike force was at full strength and began its journey towards Hawaii. As they crossed the Pacific, the six carriers traveled in a box formation. The flanks were protected by heavy cruisers and two battleships. Japanese forces had to achieve the element of surprise for the attack to be effective. In order to do this, they didn't send out reconnaissance planes or dump garbage over the sides of the ship throughout their journey. Only visual signals were used to communicate between Japanese crafts, and there was no radio communication whatsoever. They also took the most desolate route through the Pacific. Weather conditions were some of the worst imaginable, and intense weather caused a few men to be washed off the deck. It was also brutally cold, but to save fuel, the Japanese didn't use heat. One of the challenges the Japanese fleet encountered with their plan was the water depth at Pearl Harbor. Usually when planes dropped torpedoes, they would sink 60 feet before they began their course. Pearl Harbor was only about 45 feet deep, which meant it was impossible to deploy this weapon through traditional means. The solution was to add wooden fins to their airdrop torpedoes. When they hit the water, the rigid fins would absorb the shock, fall off, and minimize the depth the torpedo sank. The new method also required the aircraft to limit their speed to 150 knots, and the pilots angled the nose of the craft up by around 5 degrees so the torpedo would fall flat. Japan trained pilots in these new tactics and weapons at Kinko Bay, which had a similar layout to Pearl Harbor. Pilots were also required to train without instrumentation and relied on their sight alone. Their prime target in Pearl Harbor was the eight battleships docked in Battleship Row, with their secondary targets being the aircraft carriers. In Oahu, Admiral Husband Kimmel was settling in as the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Pacific Fleet. On November 27th, he received intelligence that warned of a Japanese attack somewhere in the Pacific. The message read, quote, This dispatch is to be considered a war warning. Negotiations with Japan, looking towards stabilizing conditions in the Pacific, have ceased, and an aggressive move by Japan is expected within the next few days. The number and equipment of Japanese troops and the organization of naval task forces indicate an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines or Kra Peninsula or possibly Borneo. Execute an appropriate defense deployment preparatory to carrying out the task assigned. Unquote. Although it didn't specifically call out Pearl Harbor, it did tell Kimmel to prepare for a potential attack. Kimmel never put Pearl Harbor on a war footing. The threat to Pearl Harbor wasn't anything new. Military planners recognized and warned about the potential risk dating back to the 1920s. In 1924, Army Brigadier General William Mitchell wrote a report on the military importance of the island of Oahu. He suggested how the Japanese might attack Pearl Harbor by air and how battleships would be especially vulnerable. In 1927, 
the Navy photographed the U.S. fleet heading into Guantanamo Bay. The picture displayed the formation of battleships, and many argue that it was prime hunting for airplanes. And in 1937, Navy Lieutenant Commander Logan Ramsey published an article that concluded battleships anchored in neat lines were the ideal target for aircraft. He also concluded that a potential enemy would attack the Pacific Fleet first to leave the U.S. defenseless. His article actually made it into the newspapers. Five days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, Admiral Kimmel met with his intelligence chief, Edwin Layton. During his brief, Layton mentions that four Japanese aircraft carriers haven't been communicating. There was absolutely no radio traffic at all. Layton concluded that the silence of the aircraft carriers must mean they were in port in Japanese waters. Kimmel agreed with his conclusion. Those four carriers were part of the armada heading to Oahu. Hidden amongst the large Japanese population in Hawaii was a spy planted by Japan. Takeo Yoshikawa's mission was to keep tabs on American naval activity. He would fly over airfields and report on the strength of American aircraft. Sometimes, Yoshikawa would dive in the waters, using only a thin reed to breathe, and noted that there were no anti-torpedo nets around the battleships. He also observed that the Pacific Fleet was usually in port during the weekends, ultimately leading to the decision to attack on a Sunday. Three hours before the attack, naval intelligence intercepted a message from the Japanese government that confirmed they were going to end peace talks. The letter instructed the Japanese ambassador to deliver it to Washington at 1 p.m. This deadline caused a lot of concern that something was going to happen around that time. In response, the United States prepared messages for Hawaii and other areas to alert them of the potential threat. Typically, communication was transmitted through military channels, but radio circuits between Washington and Hawaii weren't working well that morning. The U.S. government sent their message via Western Union. The notification wouldn't arrive until 7.33 a.m., 15 minutes before the Japanese would begin their attack. At 6 a.m., the Japanese strike force was 180 miles northeast of Hawaii. The first wave of 184 planes was launched from Japanese carriers, and they were to attack the island in two waves. Japan's initial plan depended on whether the element of surprise had been achieved. If it was, the first wave would fly south over the center of Oahu. Fighters and dive bombers would attack air bases along the way. The dive bombers that were assigned to Fort Island would orbit, but not attack, while torpedo bombers hit the battleships. If executed perfectly, U.S. air response would be limited due to the destruction of the airfields, and torpedo bombers would have an unobstructed attack at their target. If Japan did not achieve the element of surprise, Torpedo bombers would be more vulnerable to air defenses. Plan B was to attack Fort Island first, focusing anti-aircraft guns and American firepower on the dive bombers while torpedo bombers attacked the battleships. The officer responsible for signaling the correct plan was Commander Fuchida, the first wave strikes tactical commander. He was to observe, 
and communicate which plan to execute using signal flares. One flare meant they achieved surprise. Two meant they didn't. The Japanese always feared that the wooden fins on their torpedoes wouldn't work, so they had a backup plan using new technology, midget submarines. These new vessels were 80 feet long and 6 feet wide, and they were transported on the deck of regular-sized submarines. Each one carried two torpedoes. The space inside the sub was limited, and only two people could fit. At 6.37 on December 7th, sailors of the USS Ward spotted a submarine-like vessel in the restricted waters near Pearl Harbor. They opened fire on the ship. The crew wasn't aware of it at the time, but these would be the first American shots of World War II. They sent a message to Pearl Harbor, confirming they fired a depth charge at a submarine. Unfortunately, that message wasn't received with any sense of urgency. The Navy had received multiple reports of submarines before. Most of the previous accounts were false, so the information didn't get the attention it should have deserved. Radar operators on the mountainous north coast of Oahu spotted the first wave of Japanese planes heading quickly to their location. U.S. Army Privates Joseph Lockhart and George Elliott didn't know what they were looking at at first. They watched the incoming craft for 13 minutes before reporting the event. Elliott contacted the information center, who passed the message to First Lieutenant Kermit Tyler, the officer in charge. Tyler concluded that the aircraft were American B-17s flying in and told the two radar operators not to worry about it. As the first wave of Japanese planes arrived off the coast of Oahu, the residents of Hawaii assumed it was just another U.S. military drill. Japanese planes closed in on their target and awaited the signal on how to proceed. Japan had achieved surprise and Fuchida fired a single flare to signal the plan. But the flight leader didn't get into the correct flight pattern, and Fuchida assumed that he had missed the signal. He fired a second flare to make sure everyone had seen it. Little did he know, the Japanese flight leader saw both flares, so the incoming attackers assumed the element of surprise was not achieved and proceeded to plan B. The attack on Pearl Harbor had begun. On December 7, 1941, 4,500 Marines were stationed at Pearl Harbor and surrounding installations. At 7.53 a.m., Coast Guard Lieutenant Frank Erickson, the Fort Island duty officer, watched as the Marine Color Guard marched up and took post for colors. The Color Guard was made up of three Marines, Privates First Class Frank Dudovic and James D. Young along with Private Paul Zeller. Erickson watched as the Japanese planes flew overhead. The Marines heard the explosion as one of the torpedoes hit the battleship California. Erickson recalled, quote, The Marines didn't wait for colors. The flag went right up, but the tune was general quarters. Unquote. Now to break that down for Marines who never served on ship, or our civilian friends who are listening, Morning colors are the traditional flag-raising ceremony that happens every morning. It's part of the daily routine. Marines march up to the flagpole, 
There they wait until to the color is sounded at 8 a.m. and the guard raises the flag. General quarters is mainly used on board naval warships and is a condition of readiness. It is the alert you receive to get to your battle stations. On Fort Island, the Marines quickly hoisted up the colors and rushed towards their positions. At the crew barracks, Corporal Clifton Webster and Private First Class Albert E. Yale headed for the roof immediately. They set up a machine gun directly in the line of fire of the strafing planes. Marine Corps Air Station EVA was one of the first to be hit during the initial attack. At the time, military leaders were more concerned with threats from local citizens than foreign enemies, so planes were grouped together. This formation made them an easy target for the Japanese, and every Marine plane was damaged. Two squadrons of Japanese fighters swept in from the northeast at 100 feet and raked the aircraft park near the runways. In 30 minutes, the field was littered with aircraft on fire or covered in bullet holes. The Marines of MAG-21 fought back with few rifles and machine guns they had. Salvageable guns were stripped from planes and set up on improvised mounts. The group commander, Lieutenant Colonel Claude Larkin, was injured as soon as he arrived that morning, but he continued to coordinate his Marines against further enemy attacks. The machine guns manned by Marines accounted for at least one of the enemy planes to be destroyed, with a probable second. The Japanese launched three separate attacks on EVA. Three Marines were killed during the attack, and a fourth died later of his wounds. Thirteen others were injured. Fire completely demolished 33 out of the 47 planes on the field. Of the remaining, all but two suffered significant damage. The official report added that, quote, Practically to the last man, every Marine at the base met the attack with whatever weapon there was at hand, or that he could commandeer, or even improvise with the limited means of his command. They displayed great courage and determination against insurmountable odds, unquote. That morning, over 800 officers and enlisted Marines were on board ships at Pearl Harbor. Fifteen of the ships had Marine detachments, which included all eight battleships, two heavy cruisers, four light cruisers, and one auxiliary. A 16th detachment assigned to the Utah was ashore on temporary duty. On Fort Island, the guard bugler alerted the Marine 1st and 3rd Defense Battalions, but many of them were already in action. Marines rushed out of the barracks and headed for the armories. By 8.01, when Colonel Pickett ordered the Defense Battalion machine gun groups to man their weapons, eight of the guns had already been set up and engaged in action. Pickett then called for the 3-inch anti-aircraft guns to be taken out of storage and set up on the parade deck. Trucks and working parties of the 2nd Engineer Battalion were dispatched, and they headed 27 miles up in the hills to get the necessary 3-inch shells. Marine heavy equipment operators immediately went to work and began clearing the runways at Hickman Field. In addition to manning battle stations, security posts, and fire engines, Marines at the barracks assisted in collecting and transporting casualties from the waterfront to the Naval Hospital. One set of barracks, the Non-Commissioned Officers Club, 
and the PX were also cleared and prepared to care for casualties. The mess halls were opened and served food on a 24-hour basis to civilian and military personnel at the barracks. By 8.20 a.m., 13 machine guns were in action and had already taken out their first enemy dive bomber. Within the next 90 minutes, Marines added 25 more 30 caliber and 50 caliber to the yard's anti-aircraft defenses, and Marines shot down two more planes. The Marine barracks were strafed and bombed during the attack, wounding nine more Marines. With the airstrips destroyed, 40 Japanese torpedo bombers stepped up and headed to their primary target. They split into two groups, one taking Battleship Row on the east and the other looking for aircraft carriers in the west. Commander Fuchida led the high-level bombers, and their mission was to attack the battleships that survived the initial wave of torpedo attacks. The Japanese designed a special weapon for this mission. They turned a heavy, armor-piercing battleship shell weighing 800 kilograms into aerial bombs. It needed to be dropped from at least 10,000 feet, that's around 2 miles, so the kinetic energy would cause the bomb to penetrate the armor of the deck before detonating. At 8.06, five Japanese bombers flew over the USS Arizona. They dropped their payloads at the same time. One of the bombs hit behind turret number two, and it penetrated straight through the deck and into the powder room for Arizona's main guns. A million pounds of propellant blew up instantly. The explosion caused the forward end of the ship to be blown as high as 40 feet out of the water. Anything that was in the forward half of the Arizona was incinerated instantly. At least half of the crew was killed immediately in this attack alone. On board were Marine Major Alan Shapley and Corporal Earl Nightingale. They were both blown at least 100 feet into the water during one of the explosions. Corporal Nightingale was struggling to stay afloat in the water. Major Shapley swam over to him, grabbed his shirt, and told him to hang on to his shoulders. But when Shapley began to struggle himself, Nightingale loosened his grip and told him to go the rest of the way alone, but the officer refused. He grabbed Nightingale's shirt and swam the rest of the way. Later, Nightingale would say, quote, I would have drowned but for the major, unquote. Rescuing two shipmates on his way to safety, Major Shapley later received the Silver Star for his actions. Four other Marines serving on board ships in Battleship Row received Navy crosses for their heroic efforts in rescuing fellow Marines and Navy personnel. The heaviest Marine losses came from the ship's detachment on board the Arizona. Out of a Marine detachment of 82, only three officers and 12 enlisted men survived. Japanese pilots managed to destroy four battleships, one mine layer, and a target ship. An additional four battleships, three cruisers, three destroyers, and three auxiliaries were damaged. 347 aircraft were put out of action during the attack. Over 2,400 American servicemen and civilians lost their lives during the raid on Pearl Harbor. Another 1,200 were wounded. The Japanese losses were light. 
They only lost 29 planes, 5 midget submarines, and less than 100 men. Marine Corps losses at Pearl Harbor included 112 Marines killed or missing and at least 64 wounded. In the months following the attack, public hysteria and false reports caused Americans to fear Japanese-American citizens. They thought they were a threat to national security, and in response, President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, which authorized the Secretary of War to declare certain areas within the United States as military zones and to restrict access to those areas on the grounds of wartime military necessity. Under the executive order, over 100,000 Japanese, 79,000 of whom were American citizens, were removed from the West Coast and placed into 10 internment camps in remote areas. Japanese Americans were given only a few days' notice to report for internment, and many had to sell their homes and businesses for much less than they were worth. In doing so, they lost much of what they had built during their lives. In 1945, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the War Relocation Authority, quote, has no authority to subject citizens who are conceitedly loyal to its leave procedure, unquote. The last Japanese internment camp closed in March 1946. President Gerald Ford officially repealed the executive order in 1976. And 12 years later, Congress issued a formal apology and passed the Civil Liberties Act, awarding $20,000 each to over 80,000 Japanese Americans as reparations for their treatment. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt delivered his speech to the nation, and Congress voted to declare war against Japan. Shortly after, Germany and Italy honored their alliance with Japan and declared war against the United States. The U.S. was now involved in a war on two fronts, and they had to develop a plan on how they would fight in multiple theaters. Although some Marines participated in campaigns in North Africa, Italy, and Western Europe, most Marines fought in the Pacific theater. But before the United States could coordinate with other Allied forces, they had to focus on the other simultaneous attacks happening against U.S. installations throughout the Pacific. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head further into the Pacific and take a look at other coordinated Japanese attacks happening at the U.S. installations. This week's audiobook is Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness by Craig Nelson. This book covers Pearl Harbor in its entirety. The author starts with U.S.-Japanese relations dating back to the mid-1800s, events leading up to the friction between the two nations, the actual attack, and even the events that happened after Pearl Harbor. The stories you hear after the Japanese raid are often of unity and heroic tales of Americans, but there's another side to the story. U.S. citizens were scared of a Japanese invasion, specifically those who lived in Hawaii and on the West Coast. It was a dark time for Americans. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. 
We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.